read Jesus speaking, he says this. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in fine purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. That's a good word, sumptuously. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And then the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he might warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. But he replied, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. God, it is powerful. It is active. Jesus, we just pray, God, that as we study, as we think through, Lord, some of these issues that are important for us as Christians, God, that we would we would be convicted and convinced by your truth. Illuminate your words today, Lord, that we might hear them and respond. We love you and we thank you for all that you are and for all that you've done. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you guys can have a seat this morning. That story in Luke chapter 16 a story about Lazarus and the rich man, a story told by Jesus himself. And so as we go into week five of our brainwash series, which has been all about um, understanding and knowing what we believe as believers, but maybe even more importantly, not just what is it that we believe, but why is it that we believe what we believe, um, you know, it is one thing to say that I believe in a literal hell, and that's the topic for today, is hell. It's one thing to say that I believe in a literal hell. It's another to have actually considered the topic, to think through it a little bit, because hell is a big topic. It's kind of scary. Can we agree? It's kind of a scary topic. It's a big topic, and that's why we can't just walk away from it. It's why we have to face that head on, and so that's what we're going to be doing today. Now, Growing up, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. Growing up, towards the end of the month, every once in a while, I would hustle down last minute 
to my breakfast, getting ready for school, and there would be a bowl of cereal on the table. And I would, you know, whatever it was, Fruit Loops or whatever, I'd sit down to eat my Fruit Loops, and I would take a bite, and it was, ugh, just terrible, disgusting. And it wasn't that it was soggy. Something was just off. So I'd go over to the cabinet, and I would open it up, and would I find Fruit Loops? No, it was Fruityos or something. <laughs> it's not the same thing. But if that was it, I could, I could handle it. Here's the thing. Something was off about the milk. It seemed a little bit watered down, and that's when I would think, oh my goodness, it's the end of the month. The paycheck for next month hasn't come in. The groceries are a little bit low, and we are down to our boxed milk. Now, for those of you who grew up in castles with silver spoons eating Grey Poupon, you might not know what boxed milk is, but Essentially, it's like dehydrated milk, and then you add water back into the milk, and what you get is white-colored water, which you can eat with your cereal. And no, Mom, you were right. It didn't kill me yet. But it wasn't the real thing. It was watered down. Didn't taste the same thing. Did not have the same exact substance. And so in the end, I would have this breakfast cereal that to all appearances looked good, but it was not the real deal. And I think when it comes to hell, today in our culture, we have settled, sadly, in our churches for a watered-down version of the traditional Christian understanding of what hell is. And it might seem attractive But I do not know about you. I am sick and tired of stuff that looks attractive but doesn't have substance. Amen? I'm sick of something that has the veneer but not the real deal. And I want the truth. And so today, following along with this apologetic series where we're trying to understand what it is that culture is teaching us and respond with a biblical way, we're going to talk briefly It's really briefly about three views of hell that are becoming more and more popular in our culture today. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the traditional Christian view of hell and why it is that I think that it's so important. So get your notes out, pull your phones out. We are a church that worships in spirit and truth. These are things that you're going to want to write down, okay, so that you can remember them. So the first view of hell that is becoming more and more popular in our culture and in our church is called annihilationism. So can you guys say that with me? Annihilationism. Annihilation. Oh, man, that was some mumbling stuff there. Annihilationism. Well, the view of annihilationism is simply this. We will all die. All right, we agree with that one. But those who have been redeemed will be granted eternal life with God, while those who have not been redeemed by God are going to be punished by eternal death. Not, a, not an eternal conscious death, but they will be blotted from existence. They will be annihilated. They will be no more. And this view comes from Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, uh, Matthew chapter 10 rather, verse 28, where Jesus says this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And in many ways the annihilationists will build their entire theology off of that passage. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a lot of talk when it comes to the afterlife about the wicked being burned up, 
or destroyed, consumed by God's fire. An annihilationist will say that any talk of eternal fire or undying thirst speaks to the finality of a judgment of God, but not the duration of the judgment of God. Now, I will say this, out of all the three views that we're going to look at today, this is one that actually tries to use Scripture, so we can applaud that, that. but in the end, I do not believe it's the best understanding based on the totality of Scripture. I told you we're going to move quick. The second one is universalism. Universalism, the basic idea here is that all unbelievers will be saved in the end. Hell is real, but no one will actually go there. I call this the, whoops, view of the afterlife. So after death, all people who have stood before, spent their entire lives rejecting God, their entire lives, they could be the worst people in the world, they could be the most militant of atheists and God-hating people, they will stand before the Creator and they will say, whoops, and God will say, ah, it's all right, come on in. The problem with this view is that there is no scriptural basis for this view. And in fact, if you're even going to try to use theology, it takes some serious gymnastics to come up with anything resembling a theological basis for this. And in, look at me, I'm not a gymnast, all right? I don't believe in this one. And the third one we're going to talk about and you see in culture a lot is called inclusivism. Now, I'm going to be honest about this one. I want to believe this one. I think it comes out of a good place for most people, a place of genuine questioning. The view here is that some people are going to go to hell, but it will only be people who have never heard the gospel or who have, who have heard the gospel and rejected it, while people who have never heard the gospel will go to heaven. This is kind of that Amazon rainforest argument. You know, what if someone was born in the Amazon rainforest and they never heard the name of Jesus? How could God send someone like that to hell? Well, the issue with this passage are, are other scriptures like the passage of John 14, 6 that state unequivocally that no one can come to God unless they go through Jesus. And so if we're to believe inclusivism, then there's two ways to God, through Jesus and through never hearing about Jesus. And that just does not jive with what Scripture tells us. And so all of that is to say this. In our culture today, people are trying to distance themselves from the reality of hell because it's difficult. I don't know if you know this, but preaching about hell is not considered the best church growth model in our culture right now. Many churches just flat out avoid the topic. They won't talk about it. When in truth, we have to talk about hell because the gospel, the gospel is the good news that Jesus has come to save mankind. And without hell, your question should be, save us from what? It's implied. And you could say and preach a message that Jesus has come to save you from all these immediate issues that you might have, your your anxiousness and your depression and, and, and your sin. And that's all true. Jesus does come to save us from those things in this life, but the greater truth in reality is that Scripture speaks to a greater saving, that as Jesus is rescuing us from our sin, He's also rescuing us from the eternal consequences of that sin. 
He's rescuing us from a literal place called hell. Now, is this just my opinion? No. If I was up here just giving my opinion, you guys should ignore that. I'm, I promise you I'm not that smart. Um, I may look wise, but that's just because I've lost my hair. Uh, that has nothing to do with age or wisdom. Trust me, it's more stress involving my kids. We take our cues when it comes to the topic of hell. We take it from Jesus. Jesus talked about hell a great deal. And so we can't ignore those passages of Scripture. We just can't do that. In Luke 16, he calls it a place of unquenchable fire. In Mark 9, he says, Hell is a place where the worm doesn't die, where people gnash their teeth in regret and anguish. In Matthew 13, he says, It's a place from which there is no return. Matthew 25, it's a place of utter darkness. In Matthew 10, he compares hell to Gehenna, which was like the the trash dump of Jerusalem where people would take all their garbage and dead animals and they would take them outside to get a henna and they would burn them. And there were were flies and maggots and the stench and the fire. Jesus compares hell to that. Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. And it's not close. And he talked in greater details about hell than he talked about heaven. It's not a fiction. It's a real place. And so if hell is literal, the tough question in our culture is, how could a loving God, who's not after our fear, he's after our hearts, how could a loving God create a place like hell and send people there? But before I answer that, I just want us to get on the same page. Because I think, if we're honest, we would all sort of agree that some people deserve to go to hell. I mean, we'll take some just obvious examples. Hitler killed six million Jews. But if you, if you start digging down, that, that's a big number. He also killed 500,000 people who were mentally and physically disabled, just because they were physically disabled or mentally disabled. It's estimated he killed one and a half million babies. Babies, sometimes ripped from their mother's arms and used as target practice. A man like that deserves hell, am I right? Think about Jeffrey Dahmer. Lured 17 people into his home, drugged them and murdered them. Then he ate them without remorse or regret. The only thing that stopped him was he got caught. A person like that, if that person doesn't deserve hell, who does? Or if you're a historian, you might have read about the Roman Emperor Nero. He was notorious for what he would do to Christians. You know, there's some writers who wrote that he would impale them on sharp sticks. He would cover them in wax, and he would light them on fire in his garden to light his garden parties at night. So great was his depravity. Does a man like that deserve hell? I mean, I think we would most of us agree that's probably the right spot for him. But the problem comes, if you can't figure it out already, is where's the line between deserving and undeserving of hell? How do you gauge that? 
And it should all start to come together with these past weeks when, when we realize, as Pastor Travis taught about objective truth and subjective, uh, just kind of a truth based on my own subjectivity, how can we gauge who is deserving of what when we can't even decide as a culture what's right or wrong? Or it changes week by week. What, what we would have called abhorrent behavior the next, a year later, is something that's celebrated. Man, how do we decide those things? How do we know who deserves hell? Well, you could go back to the basics and you could talk about the Ten Commandments. We're all pretty good when it comes to don't commit adultery, don't, don't murder, but what about lying? What about honoring your father and your mother? How do we do if we're using that as the basis? Well, Scripture makes it simple in case you're under some sort of illusion about whether you deserve hell or not. Romans 3, 9 and 10 says this, we have already charged that all, now who? All. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside. Together they are worthless. No one does good, not even one. And if that doesn't get you, he just jumps down to verse 23 where he says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Now I hope that you're not sitting there going, now who is that? Who? I wonder who he's talking about. Because at this point it should be obvious. He's talking about us, all of us. All of us have sinned. All of us are guilty. All of us are deserving of hell. We are not righteous because of the things that we have done, but it goes beyond that because if you're using a biblical worldview, here's what you see in Romans 5.12. We see this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death has spread to all men because all have sinned. Psalm 51 talks about us being literally born with a sinful nature. We're born as sinners. It's it's in our DNA. It's who we are. So sure, yes, we've committed sin, but it goes deeper than that. Our very nature is corrupted by unrighteousness. Now, if you're not a parent, you might, you might be having a little problem with this because you might be thinking, well, what about little precious little babies? Their little fat rolls on their arms and their chubby cheeks. How could something like that be sinful? But if you've ever had a two-year-old in your house, you know the answer. My brother-in-law, my sister-in-law were over at our house just the other day, and they have three little boys. One of them's just a little baby, uh, but one of them is a two-year-old, and my brother-in-law was laying on our, our living room floor, and we were having a conversation, and um, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you wish that you could like shout a warning to someone, but nothing comes out. I had one of those moments, I'm watching him, and I swear to you, it was kind of like this. His two-year-old just sort of popped up from behind him, somehow. I don't know how he got there, but here's what he did next. He pulled out a hammer, a literal metal hammer. I don't know where he got that. He looked down at my brother-in-law and whacked him in the head. Now, we're lucky. My brother-in-law has a particularly hard head. But you don't have to teach a two-year-old to do that. They're born with it. They're little sinners. You got to watch out for them. They'll whack you in the head with a hammer when you're not looking. 
They have, they might be cute, guys, but they're sinners. All of us are sinners. We're all sin. We're sinful in our nature, and then we go on to commit sins, and so we, we cry out like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of death. When we talk about hell, it's not astounding that God would send the unrighteous there. Here's what's astounding. That God made a way for men and women who are so unrighteous to be with him. And so we're like Paul, who finishes that passage in Romans 7 by saying this in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if we had a church that was awake and alive, that would be something that we might say amen to. Because my hope and my prayer is that right now you're considering the fact that you deserve hell apart from Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. That is incredible. While we were hopeless and condemned in our sin, a perfect, sinless sacrifice named Jesus came. And he took the punishment that we deserved. He took it in our place. And for three days... After he was crucified, he lay dead in a tomb before rising from the dead, demonstrating the power of God over sin and death and hell and proclaiming freedom for all who would follow after him. And so when we make that decision to follow Jesus, here's what happens. When we give our lives to him, something incredible happens to our unrighteousness. It's gone. Jesus' sacrifice takes care of it. And so when God sees you now, if you've been redeemed by him, if you have chosen to follow after him, when God sees you now, he sees a new creation. The old is gone, and a new life is here. There is only one way to God, though. There is only one escape from sin and hell. This only happens through Jesus. And this is why Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. But church, this is something we should be excited about. This is something we should shout about and sing about. Our, our trespasses are gone. The shackles of sin are off. We are free to live a life of joy and purpose and peace connected to the Father who created us. Now and for all of eternity. And this life is just a taste of that. Someday we get to be face to face with our Savior for all of eternity. But I do take that question seriously. How could a loving God create and use a literal hell? My answer to that is simple. He, he could do that because, because he truly does actually love us. And I would actually say God doesn't send people to hell. In the end, God gives us exactly what we've asked for for our entire lives. You see, your whole life, Jesus has chased after you. God went to great lengths to save you from your sin and to warn you. And get this, this blew my mind when I was studying this week. 
Catch this. Go, go back to the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man who has had his whole entire life, he's had everything that he could want, a life of comfort, but a life in which he just sort of ignores God. That rich man in Lazarus, he asks a couple requests of God. He asks for some sort of ending to his anguish. He wants relief, and God says, I can't grant you that. But the second thing he asks for is he says, please, God, send a man back from the dead to warn my brothers about what's to come. Please send Lazarus back so that, so that they can be warned and not experience this anguish. And God says, listen, even if I sent Lazarus back from the dead, would they believe? He said, no, you're not, you're not even going to believe even if I send Lazarus back from the dead. And yet, this is exactly what God in his mercy did for us. And he didn't just send an angel or a messenger like Lazarus. He sent his very son back from the dead with a message of hope and redemption, with the good news of the gospel to warn us against the coming judgment. He died for you. He rose again. He carries our sin and offers to carry the sin of the world. He's paid for it. He's given us chance after chance, warning after warning. And so if after all of that, the world has still rejected him, God will give them exactly what they want which is separation from him for all of eternity. And here's what you need to hear. Scripture teaches that there will be a fair and a just judgment before God. And I'll be honest, this is the place where I take some of that comfort. I take some comfort from, you know, that, the what-if scenarios. What if somebody's never heard? What if, what if? I take comfort in the fact that God is just, church. He's the only fair judge that has ever existed or ever will exist. You know why? Because justice is an aspect of his character. He can be nothing but just. And so I take comfort knowing that there will never be a single person who is unjustly cast out of God's presence. There is not a single person currently in a literal hell unjustly. But we have to adjust our worldview and our cultural worldview to a biblical worldview, and we have to hang on to that truth. Ultimately, when someone stands before God who is not saved by Jesus, they are judged based on their unrighteousness and sin, and the result is that they will be cast out from the presence of God for all of eternity, separated from Him. This is hell. And friends, I cannot think of a worse torment than that, to be separated from God. And we can talk about flames, are they literal or is it a metaphor? We can talk about how can there be complete darkness if there's fire and what if and what if and what about, but in the end it doesn't matter. The real hell is a separation from God. Because even now in this world, we, we experience something called common grace, right? Whether you follow Jesus or you don't, whether you acknowledge there's a God or you reject the fact that there's a God, Scripture teaches that we all experience the common grace of God. That's things like 
the beauty of a sunset. You know that song that just hits you right here. We, we experience the love and intimacy of marriage and relationship, the, the joy of a newborn. We experience art, justice, love, mercy, peace, joy. And yet Scripture teaches that all of those things are aspects of God's very character. And so if you remove God from the equation, you've, you've lost justice, you've lost hope, You've lost love and peace and joy. That's hell. And Scripture teaches that as a result, there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Church, I believe in a literal hell. I believe that it's a literal place that exists. I don't claim that I have all the answers about it, all the what-ifs. I don't know what all those answers are. But here's ultimately why I believe in a literal hell. I believe in a literal hell because Jesus seems to have taught that a literal hell exists. And I want to be on his side when it comes to this stuff. Jesus warned us about our foolishness, he warned us about our sin. He's given us chance after chance after chance for redemption, for salvation. He offers his life in exchange for our sin. And if we choose a relationship with him, he'll save us. It's that simple. If we give our lives over to him, if we lay our lives down and ask God to make us new, if we choose to follow Jesus in his way, he will trade hell for heaven. It's that simple. You don't have to do anything beyond that. But if we spend our lives rejecting him, choosing instead our way, denying the creator, living in our sin, then in the end, we get what it is that we've wanted and asked for our whole lives. We get the absence of God for all of eternity. We get hell. I want to ask you guys to just close your eyes right now, bow your heads. In the quiet of this moment, I want you to spend a moment just reflecting. As a believer in Jesus, I want you to reflect on the goodness of God. Reflect not only on who God is, but what it is that he has saved you from. Imagine an eternity apart from hope, and beauty and joy, intimacy and laughter. Remember, We don't deserve heaven, but God made a way for us there. Believer, worship right now in your own heart, in your own prayer time, worship God for that. But now I want to speak to those of us who, 
who have never made that decision to follow after Jesus, who have never accepted his sacrifice. I want you to hear me today. God has been chasing you with this message from the very moment of your birth. He loves you. He died for you. He wants nothing more than to forgive your sin and start a love relationship with you, your creation. He calls you his beloved. He knew you before you were born. He has plans for you. And there is nothing that you can do to get to him apart from accepting the sacrifice of Jesus. And you might have heard this message once or you might have heard it a hundred times, but the only thing that matters is that you respond. And so I want to give you the chance to do that right now. Wherever it is that you're sitting, I want you to talk to God. There's no magical prayer or magical words. Just cry out to him, Jesus, I know that I am a sinner in need of a savior. I believe that you died for me. Forgive my sin. I want a relationship with you. Now, if you prayed that prayer, if you meant that in your heart, Scripture tells us that right now, angels rejoice in heaven. That God has changed you and brought you from death into life. And that from this moment on, nothing can or will be the same. And I'm not going to ask for your name or call you out. I just want to celebrate with you. I want to thank God with you. And so on the count of three, I'm going to ask you, if you prayed that prayer, to just slip your hand up, to be brave and bold about that so that I can pray for you and celebrate with you. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or call you out, but I do want to celebrate with the angels in heaven. So if you prayed that prayer on the count of three, lift up your hand. One, two, three. Praise God. I see you. You Put your hands down. God, we are so grateful for your love, which chases us from the ends of the earth, Lord. A love which, God, cannot be described adequately, God, a love which sent Jesus to die for us. We're so grateful. We thank you, God, for the way that you love us. Lord, we worship you today. We ask all these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I want to invite you guys right now, if you would stand, we're going we're gonna to worship for just a moment. If you made a decision today, I want you to jump onto your phone at some point. Go to, de- to decision.church. Decision.church. Let us know that you made a decision. I'd love to just talk to you.